Our scripture reading today from the book of Mark is in chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were in hungry and in need? And in the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, So there's a church in New Jersey, or at least there was. I'm not sure whether or not it's still in operation. It may very well be. Who chose the name for itself, Liquid Church. Now, partially this was a reference to Jesus being the living water. It also was sort of a statement about how they felt like the, the Holy Spirit was liquid, meaning that the Holy Spirit changed, um, if not substance, form, right? To, to minister to us um, and to speak into our lives. Whether the name of their church connects to this activity or not, or it just was a happy coincidence, I don't know. But Liquid Church found themselves really disturbed by and uh, galvanizing around the issue of clean water. Apparently, according to their research, um, tens of thousands of people a day, most of them children, tens of thousands a day die because of lack of access to clean drinking water. So, again, whether it was just a happy accident or the Lord led them in this direction because their name was Liquid Church, they decided to live into their name in more ways than one. They took it upon themselves to raise money for this water issue, and they decided to do it in what we might consider a non-traditional way. So here's the thing. They came up with the idea of a 5K, which seems like a pretty normal thing to do, except for when they did like a survey of their community, they realized that people were most likely to run a 5k on any idea what day of the week and during what window of time, Sunday morning. And so Liquid Church decided to get fluid. They quote unquote, canceled church. Or you might just say they did church differently. They hosted a 5K in town over 
1,200, that's 1,200 runners participated, 80% of whom were totally outside the church. And in that single day, they raised $250,000, which will end up saving about 60,000 lives. So what do you think? Did they or did they not have church that day? So it's all funny. It, it, it's all fun and games when it's in theory until your pastor suggests that we do world hunger on a Sunday next year, right? And then everybody starts to freak out. Do you feel the panic inside your chest? I do. I'm not actually suggesting that we cancel church and have world hunger on a Sunday because I feel the fear. It's actually that that I want us to focus on today. Not whether one ought to or ought not to have a 5K or a golf tournament or a world hunger on a Sunday, but that feeling that we feel when something gets a little more liquid than we like. What is that in us? And I think really the question I'm, I'm really digging at more than what is why. You know, sometimes we react in a way that's negative or feels risky because it's actually a bad idea. But sometimes we react because, well, we've just never done it that way before, right? And if we push ourselves to name why we feel that way, we might come up with a list of justifications, but in the end, it just scares us. It doesn't feel right, quote-unquote, but we really couldn't tell you why. Today's scripture passage talks about Jesus pushing, in my opinion, really two groups of people, pushing them to examine their why. The disciples, those who are on Jesus' side, and the Pharisees who aren't, both groups Jesus is sort of pushing and nudging at, okay, we're very clear on your what. Do you know your why? Because that matters. Last week, we talked about the scripture passage we had was that one that I've always kind of struggled with, that uh, new cloth and on an old shirt and new wine and an old wine skin. And, and we talked about this, this nature that God, Jesus, at least in, in these two examples, is not necessarily pushing for new for the sake of novelty. New isn't necessarily always better, but, but Jesus is pushing for what is right for the time. And sometimes new is right. The question is, how do you tell the difference? Today's scripture passage about Sabbath, of all things, something that we don't really observe as Western Christians, is, is more in that line. It's really directly linked to this idea of Jesus is shaking things up. One, is he allowed to do that? And, and two, what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about God? And more specifically and to the point for us, what does faithfulness to God actually look like? And how can we tell the difference? So anyway, back to the scripture at hand. You've already heard Miss Jamie talk about it some, this concept of Sabbath. Sabbath meaning a day of rest. It is, as Miss Jamie mentioned, in the Ten Commandments. 
you might have heard those of those. They're kind of a big deal, right? And so even though we don't necessarily name them amongst ourselves a lot, it ought to be clear to us that at least for the people who were in this story today, it's one of the biggies. It's one of the big tens, which means they take it very, very seriously. They are, and Miss Jamie read it earlier, so I'll just sort of paraphrase it. On six days, they're to labor and do all their work, but on the seventh day, you're not to do any work. You're also not supposed to ask other people to do work on your behalf. Your kids get a day of rest. Your employees get a day of rest. Day of rest for everybody. It's like an Oprah show, only naps. I don't know. The problem is, if nobody's working, then who's getting anything done, right? And so you kind of have to to parse out very specifically what people are and aren't allowed to do and when they're allowed to do it because otherwise people might take advantage, right? They they might take advantage not just for their own sake, but they might take advantage of their employees, their slaves actually at that point. And so the Pharisees, or not even the Pharisees actually because this predates that particular sect, the Pharisees, uh, the teachers of the law, the Jewish tradition had established 38 types of work that were unlawful on the Sabbath. And one of them was threshing. So for instance, Exodus 34:21, which is referring back to these 10 commandments, says Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest, even during the plowing season, and harvest you must rest. So scripture says very clearly you're not allowed to harvest. But what does harvesting mean? Well, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on their way from point A to point B, and one of them or multiples of them reaches out and grabs some grain. This is not why the Pharisees are angry. See, according to us, it's like he just stole some grain, right? But there's actually a provision in Scripture for as long as you're not using an instrument or an implement, and I don't actually know if this is in Scripture or if it's in their rules, then it was okay. It wasn't stealing. If you're just getting a snack, it's all right. But you couldn't do it on Sunday because it was considered threshing. You're not allowed to harvest on Sabbath. And so if you do, and in particular, not only did they grab it, but they rubbed their hands, so clearly they're working, they're breaking the law. If you do, you failed at a Ten Commandment. If this sounds absurd to us, and I'm not saying that it isn't, keep in mind that at the end of this passage, they decide to kill him. That's how significant this is for them. This is the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back. So what is Jesus's response when at least according to the common wisdom of the day, the Pharisees are right and Jesus's people are wrong? This is what their teachers have always told them. And here Jesus comes along and blows things up, how are we supposed to know? Well, Jesus responds to them, uh, I would say three sayings, but really four. We've got two different Sabbath stories here, but I believe they're put together in order to make a point. So even though there's two different episodes, if you will, there are sort of three 
or excuse me, four pronouncements, three in the first one and one in the second one, that Jesus makes. And as we, as we look at each one of them, because I think there are gems, there are nuggets in each one, here's what I want you to be thinking about. As we read through these, think through yourself, what is Jesus saying about one, who he is? In this statement, as we go through them, what is Jesus saying about who he is? Second of all, what is Jesus saying about the nature or the purpose of the law? And keep in mind, the law simply means the way in which we worship. And sort of underneath that, what is Jesus saying about the God who instituted the law? And then finally, the last question is, what is the right way to worship God? All right? So with these questions in mind, let's see if we can't glean a little bit more from each of these responses that Jesus gives. And the very first one Jesus gives is to reference what at least to me, but perhaps not to them, is kind of an obscure reference in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a story that comes from 1 Samuel, where David, King David, again, sort of hero of the Jewish people, is got his army, and they're out doing the Lord's work, quote-unquote, and they're hungry, and they come upon... Um, basically a, a priest and, and, and the temple and the holy bread, and they eat it for a snack. Now, it's important to note that the priest freely offers it to them, okay? They also do not steal. It's not a matter of them taking something by force. It's a matter of taking something that is supposed to be, quote-unquote, holy and consecrated to God. It's a really apt metaphor for Sabbath, in fact. And they use what is meant to be holy for basic sustenance. And you never see God get angry. You know, one of the things that I think is, first of all, well, a couple of things Jesus is saying here. First of all, Jesus is saying, first of all, there's, there's like scriptural precedent for what I've done. The second thing, Jesus is already trying to sort of like peel back the layers to, to the why behind the what. Uh, yes, holy bread is meant to be holy and given to God, but is that more important in God's value system than men who need to eat? Jesus goes on to make then this statement after he references this scripture passage. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So again, he's, he's grounding the rules in goodness. He's actually more or less giving them God's why. Why did God give you the Sabbath? Not the what, but why. The why is for your good, which is why should the what conflict with the good, the what now becomes open for discussion. I used a, a, a lot of what's and why's and stuff in there. I'm not sure whether or not that made any sense. But the point is, if the why is for your good, if the thing ever stops being for your good, then it's no longer being the thing that it was intended to be. This says something both about the purpose of all of the law, 
which frankly can seem very constrictive in lots of places, even for us as we go back and read the Old Testament. There are times where I think to myself, well, that sounds interesting. And I'm not saying that we should go back and obey like all 600 and whatever laws. But I do think it's worth noting that even in the regimented structure that was Old Testament worship, God is already saying these rules aren't for the sake of rules. They are meant for your good. In them, you will find life. Again, that says something about the rules. It also says something about the God who made them. We're going to come back to that. So just think about that for a little bit longer. Uh, And then Jesus, in this first instance, then finally makes the pronouncement, the son of man, which is um, a phrase he uses to refer to himself. He's talking about himself. The son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We've established in this section uh, that Jesus is Lord over mental illness slash evil spirits. We have established that Jesus is Lord um, even over uh, physical illness, such as, um, uh, well, he's going to heal a man in a minute. He has cured a leper. He cures the paralytic. And now he is firmly, firmly establishing that I am Lord even over what it means to rightly worship God. Right? This isn't just a matter of Sabbath. It's a matter of worship. I am even the Lord of that. In many ways, Jesus is implicitly making the statement that he is, in fact, God. Okay? Not just a smart guy. Not just a prophet. Jesus has the ability, uh, back to the paralytic, which is, again, part of this section when he offers forgiveness to, of sins. He's able to offer forgiveness because of sins because he decides what is and isn't sin. He's rewriting the sin rules. Sin isn't breaking the rules. Sin is bad instead of good, right? Death instead of life, which is a, a language he's going to use. There are some nuances to that, so hold on tight. But Jesus is redefining what it even means to be a sinner. He's Lord of even that. It's a pretty big statement, right? So fast forward some period of time. It's not the same day. We don't know when it is. It does happen to be the Sabbath, um, which I hadn't named in maybe is or isn't important to you all, the the Jews, their Sabbath was different. Theirs was Friday night at sundown to Saturday at sundown. So it's Sabbath, and guess where Jesus is? At the, uh, not at the temple, at the synagogue worshiping. He's observing Sabbath. But the problem is, you know, he has just named in the preceding passage that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Obviously, the Pharisees don't buy it. They do not accept his authority. Because they wait for him to, quote-unquote, break another rule so that they can catch him. And who knows whether they devised this, having the man with the withered hand, or if they just knew that this confrontation, not confrontation in a negative way, but this interaction between Jesus and the man who needed healing, they maybe just knew it was coming, and so they were waiting for it. They don't even say anything is interesting. They're just watching. And Jesus, again able to see, see into their hearts, 
into their why behind their what. Goes ahead and beats him to the punch and says, I know what you're doing. Go ahead and stand up. And he heals this man on the Sabbath. Is it wrong to heal the man? No. He's just not allowed to do it on Fridays from sun um, down to, to Saturday at sundown, right? Because it's not an emergency. Jesus could heal him just as well on a Tuesday. And they have a point. He could, right? The man has lived with a, with a withered hand for who knows how long. Jesus could wait another day. And he doesn't. And at this point, this is where Jesus makes his sort of final pronouncement. Again, two different episodes, but four different sayings that are all getting at the same thing. Jesus says, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Isn't it ironic that in just two verses, the Pharisees hatch a murder plot on the Sabbath? So just which one of them is getting this whole Sabbath observance thing wrong, right? To save life or to kill. Jesus breaks the rules and heals a man. The Pharisees theoretically keep the rules and hatch a plot to murder Jesus. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We've talked about these things a little bit along the way, but here are some more things that I want to draw out, specifically as it relates to these three questions that we've talked about. Who is Jesus? What is the nature of the law and the God who created it? And ultimately, what does it look like to worship this God? Well, We've already said that, that Jesus is the Lord of all of the things, right? Uh, master of the universe, there at creation, able to heal the sick and the lame and the blind and the demon-possessed, now able to redefine what it means to sin. But not just that, or maybe just that, maybe this ability to redefine sin, Jesus now becomes the new metric. Here's what I mean by that. How did one know how to follow God before Jesus showed up? Imagine you're a Pharisee. How does one know? Scripture. Okay? All right. Y'all are nodding your heads at least. Jesus is not abolishing Scripture. But Jesus is showing up and saying, stop looking at that, look at me. That's a really big deal, y'all, right? It's a major shift because Jesus is now saying, there is nothing wrong with Scripture. He will say elsewhere in Scripture, I have not come to abolish the law to fulfill it. He is, however, saying there is a new and better way to discern the will of God, to know who God is and who you're supposed to be, and it's me, Jesus becomes the new access point, the new mediator. In the words of, um, this was written in 1977, and and I find it so apropos to the things that we discuss and and work through today as Christians. A.W. Tozer uh, refers to it as the quote-unquote real truth. 
1977, of all things, here's what he wrote. He says, there is today an evangelical rationalism which says that the truth is in the word, and if you want to know the truth, go learn the word. Not that this is bad, and by the word he means scripture. If you get the word, you have the truth. This is the evangelical rationalism that we have in fundamentalist circles. If you learn the truth, you've got the truth. This evangelical rationalist wears our uniform. He comes in wearing our uniform and says what the Pharisees said. Well, the truth is the truth, and if you believe the truth, you've got it. Such see no beyond and no mystic depth, no mysterious and divine. They see only... And he quotes a creed, which incidentally happens to be true. I believe in the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. But the problem is they're not able to see what the text and the creed points them to. There's a reason why we capitalize the W in word when we're referring to Jesus. Did y'all ever notice that? When we refer to the word of God and we mean scripture, it's a little W. In John 1, when we talk about the Word of God made flesh, it's a big old capital W. Because it's Jesus, the Word, the one that the little w is pointing us to. This is what Tozer says, and I think there's maybe some truth to it. He says the result is we are dying spiritually. Because we are focused on the rules and not the goodness that is God and the relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. Again, to know the truth, and I'm still quoting Tozer, we must know the Son. This is the paradigm shift, earth-shattering, that is happening in this text. And if you don't believe he is the Son of God, can you see why they want to kill him? Jesus, as I've said, um, emphasizes the good that Sabbath, or rather God, intends through the Sabbath without negating the Sabbath itself. And this is really, I guess, the last place that I want to land on. As it turns out, and I guess I'm thinking less of the disciples and more people like you and me, we don't actually know what the good is, do we? The Pharisees thought the good was observing the Sabbath legalistically. You want to know what we think the quote-unquote good is? Working like a dog until you die. How many of y'all routinely practice the Sabbath as it is described in Scripture? This is not meant to shame you, so how about none of you raise your hands and I'll just raise mine? I hadn't intended to include this, so I don't have the reference, but I did read an article, or not an article, a little story about we now know that stress and anxiety can lead to physical symptoms. Okay, we know that. That's taken for granted. In the 50s, they didn't have any idea that one's emotional health could, uh, could manifest itself in, in one's physical health. It started when a cardiologist's office had an upholsterer come in to reupholster the seats, and the only part that was worn was the very front part. So imagine somebody came in to reupholster our pews, and just the very front part was worn off as if a person was sitting on the edge of their seats. And he thought to himself, this is weird. The hiney indentation ought to be further back. Y'all are with me on this, right? Right? 
it turns out the people who had heart problems were those who were constantly on the edge of their seat ready to go. Started with an upholsterer who noticed this. The type of people who had to go to cardiologists because they were having heart issues were the kind of people who could not relax. It was the beginning of just this whole like medical revelation that, that our internal life can literally affect the biology of our bodies. Anyway, the point is, we don't always know what's good for us, do we? The Pharisees wanted to, like, again, sort of legalize the Sabbath. We have a tendency to want to ignore it. So back to this, this wineskin thing. Is, is the old better? Is the new better? Neither. We're asking the wrong question. Let's get down to the why. For Jesus, the why is the restoration of human life. Restoration to how God intended it. Restoration for how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, how we relate to our very selves. That's the why. And we sometimes or often get so caught up in the what because, because we're not good at knowing what's good for us. And that's the piece that Jesus pushes us on. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, I'm not telling any of us to give up the rules. That's sort of the libertine reaction we might move to, right? Just do whatever we want. No, what Jesus is really trying to say is, I am the expert on the good. So if you want to know and live the good, follow me. Pretty basic, right? And oh so hard to do. Quoting um, another Christian author with whom I'm not particularly familiar, Robert Roberts, but I'll give him credit. He writes that there's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. And he makes a good point that this list, whether it comes from mindless fundamentalism or mindless liberalism, either way, it's really nice to just know where you stand and not have any anxiety. Do's and don'tism has the advantage that you don't need wisdom. You don't have to think subtly or make hard choices. You don't have to relate personally to a demanding and loving Lord. And this is ultimately what Jesus is saying. I know you don't know what's best for you, but I do. So watch me and follow me. And if I say you need a Sabbath, take a Sabbath. And if I say it's okay to heal and break the rules, well, then you can do that too, right? But it's Jesus who gives us not just the what, but the why. And leads us to know, both in Scripture and in Jesus' living and breathing presence through the Holy Spirit, just what a worshiper is to do. All right, let's go to God in prayer. God, thank you that you are out for our good whether that means sometimes um, reining back our impulses or setting us free. You saw life in the beginning and said that it was good. 
you are calling each one of us back to that goodness, but we don't know what the good is. And so therefore we have to, again, allow ourselves to be led by you. Thank you that, you, that you're willing to lead us, that you came in the form of your son, Jesus Christ, to show us what we couldn't figure out on our own. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of that gift by choosing to follow you, whether it's a first-time decision to say, yes, I will make Jesus the new North Star. Or if it's just every day, waking up, trying to figure out the good. Help us to seek first you, God, and your kingdom through your son, Jesus Christ, which is the clearest revelation of who you are and what you want. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.